Hey friends, welcome back to the Old Fashioned On Purpose podcast. As you know, my theme this season is diving into some of my favorite authors and some of my favorite thinkers. And today I am very excited to have the author of this book with me today, Shannon Hayes. I know this will be backwards in the video, um, but I have known about her book, Radical Homemakers, for a while, just kind of on the periphery of uh, things I was finding on the internet. But it wasn't until this last spring when I was researching my own book that I came across it again and decided to dive in. And it was excellent. And so even though Shannon wrote this book in 2010, I feel like so many of the ideas and concepts that she shares and what she has continued to share in other platforms that she has is so relevant to what we're seeing in our culture right now, especially in this homestead sphere. So Shannon is the author of several books. We'll talk about those today. She's a businesswoman, a homeschool mom, and a podcaster who holds a master's degree in sustainable agriculture. Her essays and articles have appeared in many renowned national publications, including the New York Times, the Boston Review, and welcome, Shannon. I am so excited for this conversation. I'm so glad to be here, Jill. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so we'll just dive right in if that's okay with you. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so I was alluding to this a little bit when we just we joined the call initially. So I've known about this book for a while. I've heard people reference it, but um, I'm just going to be really upfront right off the bat. I was put off by the title, like for a while, because, and it's my own hangup, it's nothing that you did as an author or anything. I come from, um, I came from a very strict religious sect where homemaking and the way they defined homemaking was kind of used as a weapon and a, a very limiting idea. And so anything that had the word homemaker attached to it, I, you know, again, personal hang up. I was like, Ooh, that's not for me anymore. I don't want to broach that. But when I actually opened your book and started reading it, I realized it's anything but limiting. It's actually, it opens up a whole new world. And so you really help to redeem that word for me and see it in a new light. <laughs> so thank you for that. Well, yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's interesting how certain terms can really get co-opted. Mm -hmm. And um, when I started on my quest to learn more, I'm living here in the Northeast. And so it didn't have those same connotations. But um, I think what was illuminating for me in writing that book were all the things that I didn't write in the book. Um, yeah. Because I had to go on a journey and find out, uh, I had to go into a lot of places where I love how you phrase that. It was weaponized against women. It was used to subjugate, to control. And, um, and I, on my quest to find out what I was trying to define it as, I had to go into a lot of painful situations where I had to walk away and say, wow, that is not what I meant. And um, I wasn't going to discuss that in a book because yeah. these people had opened their lives. They had confided in me, um, particularly uh, a lot of women. Um, and um, I did not want to jeopardize their safety in any way. But it was a, I learned a lot by learning what I didn't mean. And there's a lot said in the book in what's not said. I noticed that, which I thought was very well handled in those aspects. Yes, <laughs> yes. Were you surprised when you started? Because you, you did a lot of interviews, obviously. That's kind of the core of the book. Were you surprised um, that that was how homemaking was being used in some lifestyles? Or did you know that kind of going into it, that there was different ways that people were defining it? So, you know, I was 35 years old. I had two young children. And I was recognizing that 
you know, I had a, a PhD in sustainable ag and community development. I was um, coming out of the Ivy League. I was like on a career trajectory and yet had a head for business, enough of a head for business to recognize something. The game is rigged. Yeah. It's really rigged and it wasn't going to work the way I wanted it to. And I was also recognizing uh, having grown up the way I did. So I, yes, I did get this great education, but I actually grew up in the Northern foothills of the Appalachian chain where um, people had a subsistence living and lived very happily and very well. And those were skills that I just brought into my adulthood with me. And I was starting to put two and two together between this education that I had and wait a minute with all this education and all this career prep, why was it that it seemed like the best economic sense and the best quality of life was going to be adopting these skills that I had learned from my Appalachian neighbors. And so um, when I started pursuing this research topic, I had an idea of what it could be, but it was not defined. Mm -hmm. And I was also already, um, prior to that, I had been writing about the grass-fed meat movement and was writing about sustainable farming. And so I had an awareness in sustainable farming, you could go in many different directions. You could be a real hardcore Christian fundamentalist who believed that the woman and should be in skirts and barefoot. Yeah. You could also be a hippie back to the lander. You could be a renegade libertarian. You could be all kinds of things. So I was very familiar with the landscape, but I had not um, put, I hadn't mapped it out, if you will. Yes. And that journey that I took crossing that country, I had a, 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 a toddler in a backpack on my back and another one by my hand, we were crossing them with a train meeting all these people. Um, I was, I was on a quest to yeah. sort of map this out and to understand it because I knew in my gut that there was a way of life that would be open to my family. Um, if I could understand it, and uh, but I needed to see the landscape and understand all the different ways. And then I process information by writing. Yeah. So that book is is what came of that, where I really tried to learn that. I love that. I think the very best projects are the ones we start out with an idea, but it becomes clear and fleshed out the longer the, or the further we go. I love those projects. Yeah. I was yeah. scared to death to write that book. I have to tell you, I remember sitting in the living room of the farm with my parents and saying, I have to write about homemaking and their jaws dropped. I mean, my mom was, you know, second wave feminism. My, both my parents worked, they had full-time professional careers and obviously they prepared me for that. And I, I said, I think I might destroy my career if I do this, mm. but I think there are too many important questions. I think second wave feminism and what we have been taught it means is is potentially causing problems in the environment, causing problems actually economically for families. Yep. And it was, I thought I am probably choosing the worst subject for the advancement of my career. Yeah. But I couldn't let it go. I couldn't think about anything else. I couldn't read about anything else. I had to get an understanding. So it was an obsession. I hardly slept working on that book. I just couldn't stop reading, couldn't stop doing interviews, couldn't let it go. I love that. Yes. Um, and that, yeah, that's a lot of integrity to follow that obsession, even though you knew it wasn't, didn't make sense at the time, but you knew you had to do it. I like, I, I relate. Yeah. That's powerful. So after this journey and maybe to our audience who, ha if they haven't read your book yet, how would you define 
a homemaker in your own terms after your own discoveries. The people in this book were living basically by four tenets, economic sustainability, ecological sustainability, community engagement, and what's best for the family. Mm, yeah. And um, that's how I came to frame what true homemaking was. Um, later on, when I wrote the next book, Redefining Rich, I started realizing that what they were doing is they were holding those tenants and they were applying what I ended up calling non-monetary income to keeping their households uh, economically viable. And but they were holding on to those tenants. So they weren't just simply choosing to um, grow vegetables and build log cabins because it was a matter of, you know, achieving some sort of homesteading goal yeah. and, and getting stars and on their badges or, you know, Boy Scout badges or whatever. It was it was about achieving these aims for their family, like keeping their family together keeping their kids in an environment that they felt was more nourishing, engaging with their community more fully and using these non-monetary skills, whether it was mending their clothing, keeping a garden, canning, repairing their own cars, all of these things were building up so that they didn't have to then take jobs that didn't honor those tenants. So it was basically living by these principles in their homes with their families and then applying non-monetary income skills so that they were free to live by these principles. Yes. So does redefining rich kind of take, pick up where radical homemakers left off or is it a, it's kind of a different premise entirely? Well, redefining rich. So that came out, um, well, just about 10 years afterwards, a decade Mm -hmm. after that book came out and redefining rich is what I learned in the meantime, because, you know, at the time I was writing that, Um, one of the things I noticed was that um, the radical homemakers would go through a cycle um, and I call it the renounce, reclaim, rebuild cycle. I, I, as I I started off this interview telling you um, there are many things said in the absences in the book, (laughs) in the, in the quiet negative spaces, if you will, um, when I learned what it was not. And one of the things I told you about was we talked about how some women were subjugated and homemaking could be weaponized. But one of the other things that I noticed was I had spent a lot of time reading Betty for Dan's, book, The Feminine Mystique, and recognizing um, this issue of housewife syndrome. And I started recognizing not only there were times when homemaking could be weaponized, but I also would read between the lines and start to recognize when I would see signs of housewife syndrome, Mm -hmm. signs of depression, signs of anxiety. And what I started to recognize is I sifted out like, who is happy and doing all right um, from who was really you know, not thriving in the way they could was looking through these three things. They would move through these cycles of renouncing, reclaiming, and build, rebuilding. So when you renounce, you kind of go through this thing where you read everything, like you decide, my, I hate my job. I hate living in this commercial society. I want to get out of this. I want to learn everything I can. So you renounce and you study everything. You follow every podcast. You go to every homesteading conference that you can get to, and you really collect a lot of information. And then the next phase they would move into is reclaiming. And this reclaiming is like a massive effort to get all these skills. Like, are you going to be a beekeeper? And then you're going to, yeah. uh, you're going to put your garden in and then you're going to can every tomato you grow. And then you're going to hang all your herbs up and you're going to make all your medicines all by yourself. And you're going to sew all your clothes and, and you're going to weave all the fabric to make your quilts. Yeah. Like a massive reclaiming of skills. And, and this is the point where people can go crazy. 
I've been, I've been um, crazy there before. Just I've, I've dipped into crazy <laughs> there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. So, um, and I, I actually went to one home where they had like acquired all these skills and they were always on a quest to acquire more skills and, and do it better and more perfectly where every stick of firewood was organized in the wood pile according to diameter and length. Okay. And you yeah. go, okay, wait a minute. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and and then I started to recognize, wait a minute, this is where I'm starting to see <clears throat> happiness is going. And then I would look at the ones who were happy. And, you know, there were piles of laundry. There was dust in the corners. There was like always kitchen mess. The kitchen was alive with like lacto-fermentation and, and like spills that hadn't quite gotten clean up yet. Their fridge was just spilling over. The cabinets had all these baggies of things falling yeah. out. And they were engaging. So they weren't just like accepting their imperfection, but they were also rebuilding. So they like got enough skills to be economically secure with those skills. They chose the ones that were going to work for them because believe me, there are just more than any of us can take on. And then they turned outward and they engaged in changing the world. They took their skills, they got what they needed to do what they were going to do. And then they said, I'm going to turn outward and I'm going to build a better world. I'm going to use this to build a bridge to an economy that makes sense to build a community that I'm proud to raise my children in. Yeah. And those were the ones who were like grappling with the macro issues and the micro issues. And in all that chaotic imperfection, they found happiness. And so what happened in that 10 years, I was sort of young and getting my skills and working in my family business, but you know, I had, um, you know, I had decided to go into business with my parents. They went through five surgeries in the course of 18 months, major surgeries where we had to do caregiving. Um, I got older, my kids got older, and my community started uh, suffering different onslaughts of um, ecological, economic predation um, because we were a poor rural community. And I started recognizing that it's my turn to turn outward. Yes. And I had to figure out how to like take over my family's business because the transition, the the need, the the health issues were really demanding that. But I also needed to really start to change this community. And I had to do it in a way to make the bottom line work because now it was a business and family. And I needed to make sure that I was creating an economic situation that my daughters could take on if they wanted to. And so I had to become more of a businesswoman, get a little bit sharper, but that's, so the second book is, you know, what did I learn in those 10 years and how did I do that Mm -hmm. and still hold on to these principles? This episode is sponsored by Redmond Agriculture. If you recall from previous episodes, they're the company that produces my absolute favorite salt for baking and cooking. And they just launched something new that I have been dying to tell you about. So for years, you've heard me talk about soil testing. And it's so crucial for us as home gardeners who are trying to produce food to know what's going on at the soil level. Otherwise, it's really easy to get frustrated and not understand why your yields might be where you need them to be, why some plants are struggling, and so on. Now, the problem with soil tests is that they've been pretty cumbersome to do. You have to find a university that does it locally or mail them off to random places online. There just hasn't been a great option until now. So Redmond's just launched a soil test kit that is designed for people like you and me, homesteaders and home gardeners. 
And what I'm holding here is a bunch of my printout results and I have been totally nerding out over this. So it's super easy to do. Uh, you get the kit, you send it in in the mail and within five or six days, you'll have results emailed to you. I discovered things in my test reports that I had no idea. Uh, and I'm gonna go into all the nitty gritty on a future podcast episode, but um, just for now, I'll tell you a few of the most surprising findings. I discovered my compost pile was low in nitrogen. I discovered my greenhouse was too high in nitrogen. And I discovered why the potting soil that had gave me so much trouble this spring was killing all my plants. So again, I'll go into the details in an up, uh, upcoming episode. But for now, I want you to have access to the soil kit because gardening season is rapidly coming to a close. And if you've had a rough year, like many folks are reporting that they've had, um, now is the time to test your soil and figure out what's up. So if you go over to the prairiehomestead.com slash soil test, you can use the code homestead to save 15% on soil kits or anything else that Redmond's has to offer. So I can't wait for you to try this. Um, knowledge is power. And as gardeners, we can use all of the data that we can get. So now back to our episode. Man, you said so many, so many things. Um, first off, the three stages. When I read that in the book, I just was like, it could not be more accurate because that is the exact stages I have gone on myself. Um, and it was so reassuring because I kind of, I guess for a while, I thought I would, would have to stay in that middle stage forever. Like, I'm like, well, this is the ultimate homesteading is just more skills, more skills, more skills, more perfection. And I started to go, I started to get burned out and I started to lose interest. And it wasn't until naturally, I just was like, what else can I do? I'm not, I like community. Like I built my homestead. Now we need to build broader. Like you said, that's when I felt so much more satisfaction and so much more of that um, happiness. Uh, even like, so um, last year we invested in a, we have a town of 175 people near us. That's our closest community. And we bought an old soda fountain, a tumble down, run down little restaurant there. And it, initially I was like, excited to do it, but also we are insane. Like no one does this. Homesteaders don't do this. What are we doing? Like, this is ridiculous. But then just reading that part of your book, I'm like, no, this is part of the cycle. Like this is just part of the next step in the trajectory and it's healthy and it's good. And it has brought a lot of fulfillment, chaotic at times, but it's, it's good. So that was so helpful. Well, that's, yeah. that's what we did. We <laughs> yeah. had a firehouse that was a, a white elephant in, the, in our community and um, it was attached to the post office and the U.S. Postal Service had tried to shut it down and the building had been on the market for years. So we bought it and we put in a farm to table cafe and oh everyone goodness, thought we were. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's what Redefining okay. Rich is talking about, yeah. that journey of building a community space yeah. and and um, turning outward. And, you know, it's it was a huge economic outlay. And how did we do it? How do we make it work? And, you know, not get divorced yeah. and keep our kids <laughs> yep. loving it. Yep. Yep. <laughs> but it, um, it's ended up being an amazing journey because it's this tiny little cafe. It's open only one day a week because that's where we found balance. Yep. And um, our children who are now 19 and 15 work in it with us. They have all mm -hmm. the money they need to go to college. Yeah. We basically enabled them to earn money to pay for their college rather than us having to have six figure incomes to save, to give them money to college. So, and the book explains like how that works, how you make those, those numbers successful for your family so that you, you can work one day a week. I work more than that, obviously, sure, but sure. the cafe itself is only open, but yeah, that's exactly what, what we did. And, um, it's been an amazing journey. It's been absolutely amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That was, I didn't know you had the cafe, which 
just makes me even more more solidarity because <laughs> I'm like, no one else. Like, what is wrong with us? No one else is buying restaurants or building oh, restaurants. People, oh but my like, goodness! Oh, yeah, they thought something was wrong with us. Yeah. They called my parents. Yeah. They thought I needed, yeah. you know, like, yeah. you know, were we on drugs? Were yeah. we, you know, just not thinking? We were throwing the whole family fortune down the toilet. Yeah. Oh sure. All yeah. the things. But All you know, things, yeah. sometimes. You just need a little skin in the game to have some fun. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Steaks are higher. That's my kind of fun. That's my kind of fun. A little sweat, a little nausea. It's all good. <laughs> so it's all fun. Um, I love it. So uh, I want to go back to housewife syndrome because I think that's really important. And I see that in a lot of moms around me still to this day. Um, can you define that for us? Well, Betty Friedan really defined it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'll never do that justice. But what I was seeing is like depression, anxiety, perfectionism. And um, sometimes it could come in the form of uh, even just being afraid to go outside of yourself, being afraid to push. Um, and oftentimes when people got stuck in that second phase of acquiring skills, um, that's when I would see that housewife syndrome happening Okay, because they would just obsess yeah. And, um, or they'd say things like, you know, they, they would have like beautiful wood piles and, you know, gorgeous quilts and, um, beautiful knitted sweaters and stuff. But then in their quiet moments, they would say things like, and I sit here and I wonder what it's all for, yeah, what it's all about. Yes. Um, you know, you can, I could take you on a tour if I could lift up this computer and walk it around. You could see the mess that is my house. Yeah. Um, but I can sit here and tell you any second of any day, what's this about? Why am I doing this? And um, that was what was missing. But that that depression and anxiety are just, they were overwhelming for some people. Yes. And um, and that's, that's what you look for. And, you know, a balance of power that's not there, mm-hmm. a lack of a balance of power, um, fears, things like that. Those are yeah. all signs of it. And, um, you know, the thing is, we talk about homemaking and we talk about the risk of housewife syndrome, but I also noticed that people who work can also be in codependent, dangerous, toxic relationships with those jobs too. So, you know, no matter what we do, <laughs> the vocation has, has its, its dangers. Yes. Um, so I want to, you know, I want to be fair about that, but yeah, you, you have to be thinking about these things. If you're going to choose to forge a path where there is not a conventional ladder to success, there is not an outside world that says, oh, you've achieved this title or you have this salary, therefore you have value. You don't get any of those artificial props. You have to, it all has to come from within. You have to make it happen on your own and you have to find your own satisfaction and sense of completion and fulfillment. And um, that can be dangerous for some people. They may not be yeah. ready for that. Yes, that's a good point. Now, I haven't read The Feminine Mystique. I've read portions of it in other works. But am I correct in understanding that Betty Friedan's solution to that was for women to go be empowered in the workplace primarily, right? Well, what was interesting is she wrote, you know, several editions of that came out. And mm-hmm. that was the solution that we interpreted. And um, that... that you mainstream United States culture interpreted. And what was fascinating is right when that happened and we had this second wave of feminism, it was also when we started introducing more corn syrup into our foods, we started getting more processed foods, we started changing our diet. Um, Is correlation causation? 
I don't know, but wow, did you know, I would, I suspect that the fact that then no one was home and we all needed these processed foods and there was a market yeah. for them. And we, then we started getting the obesity issues and all the chronic health problems. So I've always found that was really fascinating. And what I think is cool is if you look at the last edition that she wrote, she put a comment in her forward saying, it's no longer a battle of the sexes. It's about the corporations. Yeah. yeah. And we have to take that into consideration. Um, so um, w- at one point, did she believe that was the answer? Yeah. But I mean, any of us who are writing and researching, you know, where we are in the path of our careers, it changes. It really Absolutely. changes. Yes. Yeah. It definitely does. It's humbling how much it changes sometimes. Oh my God, all the ways I've been wrong. <laughs> yes. Sometimes I don't even like, I'm like, I don't want to look at the old blog posts. Like, I just don't want to look at them. <laughs> it's horrifying. Yeah. So sure of myself, but like, no. Um, anyway. And so I, I like that you brought up the corporation point because um, I think some of my favorite sections of the book were where you're talking about the introduction of consumptionism and how the home shifted from a place of production to a place of consumption. And Especially, I think one of the the pieces that really shook what I thought that, you know, I was told to be true is that, you know, I was told that the home has always been the women's domain, period, end throughout history. And that was like the traditional right way for it to be. And then you came in with the the facts and kind of blew all that up. So can you (laughs) speak to that a little bit for the audience? Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll, I'll gloss over it. Um, But basically, the household husband is houseman housewife is housewife and they they come from old german and it comes it roots back to the middle ages when um the first middle class was starting to emerge and you had householders that people that could actually hold their own land and a, a man and a woman would work that land together and they would maintain a household and it was an economic system for them and their family and as opposed to being in the feudal system and under the care of a lord and so it was you know the original middle class independence and the system worked by men and women working together dividing up skills and you know it wasn't as gender, I mean, definitely there were certain genders doing certain things, but there was a lot of crossing, like women might sew, but men were sewing leather. And, you know, the men did hard physical work, but the women were doing a lot of the lifting in the gardening and, and a lot of the hard physical work in the kitchens. Um, and what happened is um, this system was going on in Europe. And then we, I'm, I'm like, Jumping way forward to the Industrial Revolution. And we needed to get workers. And the first people we asked to come into the the factories were the men. So the men were the first to leave. And that's the only time when it actually started being the woman's domain. And it was because the man couldn't be home anymore to slaughter the hog and do his share of those responsibilities. But it was originally two people running a a household ecological system together. Yes. Which I think is it's beautiful to think about. And also it's, it makes a lot of sense, especially when you get into the homesteading world, because it really is a multi-person project I mean, you can do it alone. And I've interviewed single homesteaders, but it really, I mean, when you get into the full breadth of it, it's, it's nice to have an extra person there. So do you feel, I think somewhere in the book, you talked a little bit about kind of the modern malaise of just people just feeling 
the depression and the anxiety, even beyond just the housewife syndrome, just kind of like culturally, people are just kind of in that funk. Do you, you probably wrote about this in the book. I'm just trying to remember. Did you attribute that to kind of that loss of production where we're, we don't have that purpose anymore because we are just consuming? Like, how do you kind of tie that in? Yeah. Um, that, that's what I see that, um, for, you know, right up until the pandemic, the drive in this country was to consume, to have the newest, the greatest and the latest. And, um, there was no core about what is this for? What are we going toward? How are we, we kind of thought that happiness in this country was about sort of how much income did you have and how much can you buy with it? And, there's really so much more to happiness and the happiness science now has really, really come forward a lot more where we're really starting to understand that. But I believe that in this country, that consumerism was really contributing a lot, not just the consumerism, but also the competition to have more, the, the pressure to have our children be more successful than other children, to get them into all the right activities so that they can get into all the right schools and so they can then be competitive for fewer and fewer prestigious jobs. All of that, you know, this whole treadmill of life um, was, I think, contributing to um, massive depression and anxiety and chronic illness statistics in this country. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think, I think the pandemic has really helped to, um, shake a lot of this up. I think a lot of people have had to come up for air in, in the midst of this and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, what was I doing that for? And why am I doing that? And, um, I'm kind of curious to see, uh, I know a lot of people, you know, then they had to with the pandemic, spend more time at home and figure out some of these things and come up with alternative economic arrangements and alternative arrangements for cooperating with family and neighbors and friends. Um, so I'm curious to see, you know, what the fallout of that is. Do we move beyond that consumerism in this country? Boy, I really think it's time that we do. Yes. Yes. I hope it has some lasting change and then we just don't brush back and go, go to our former places. But I noticed that as well. Even just the rush to for everyone wanting to make sourdough bread or everyone wanting to start canning. Oh, and I'm bread. like, oh, please, no sourdough bread. <laughs> no more sourdough bread, please. But um, yeah, I'm like, you're feeling, you got, y'all are feeling something. I don't know if you know what you're feeling, but you're feeling something that's stirring. So keep following that. Like keep, keep chasing that and see where that leads. So mm -hmm. hopefully we'll have some, some lasting positive effects after that. Um, so several times you've talked about knowing what this is all for, meaning like what, what you're doing and the purpose behind it. If someone's listening to this right now, and maybe they're trying to figure out what it is all for, why they're doing these things or why they should do these things. Do you have any advice for them on how to get that clarity? Yeah. Um, I talk about this more in depth in, in redefining rich. Um, and I talk about the quality of life statement. Mm -hmm. Um, what you're after, what you're trying to achieve. And I used to have like a, you know, a lengthy quality of life statement. And by the way, people can go to my website, uh, theradicalhomemaker.net, and um, they can download a workbook from Redefining Rich, which helps you with that quality of life statement and also looking at different income streams and things. Um, but um, what I found was initially working with that quality of life statement that was what I was going for at the beginning. Like, why am I doing this? What am I after? And um, Bob, my husband and I, 
we had things like, you know, we wanted to be home with our children. We wanted to be connected to our family. We wanted to be a, a part of the fabric of our community. And we had all these things listed, you know, which meant, you know, we're going to work from home and we're going to homeschool our kids and we're going to make time for travel. Like, and we really spelled it all out in, um, in this like multi-paragraph statement that we kept on our kitchen wall for a while. Um, now, it's down to just a very simple statement. We've done this for so many years. We say we're in it to nourish and restore family, community, and planet. Just like that. that. Yep. And my kids know it. Um, they work on the farm and in the cafe with us now. And we have employees and they all know it. And uh, what we tell everybody is this is what we're here for. If you are ever in a situation where you need to make a decision, you put that in front of you. And as long as you have honored that, you're going to be okay. We may have different ideas on how that how that gets sure. honored, but as long as that's the core and you start to recognize you're playing a long game yeah. in that way, you know, you can play your finances, the long game, you play your relationships and how you're working with people. Um, so that quality of life statement is what led us to that very, very simple statement. But, you know, a couple paragraphs where you sit down with everyone in your family and you talk about what are you after? What are you trying to achieve? And put that up on the wall and then you hold every decision up to that. You know, before you take the next job, before you agree to the next activity, is it supporting that? If it is not, you got to learn to say no. Yeah. That's powerful. And sometimes those, the shortest little statements like that have the most impact. Yeah. Um, what would you say, because I know in Redefining Rich, you talk about those income streams and creating those side incomes and things. Um What if someone is still in traditional employment, but they're wanting to bring in some of these ideas, do you have any advice for them of how you can kind of live in both of those worlds? Maybe just while they're transitioning into a, a home-based business or something. Right. Well, the first thing you do is you start that quality of life statement. Okay. Um, because once you have that, um, what I explain in Redefining Rich is there are basically four income streams in, in this world. One is meaningful employment. In other words, it's a job that supports your quality of life and it's salaried income and that's fine. The next is self-employment business income. Um, and the reason why that's important, I explain it very carefully in Redefining Rich, but conventional employment is actually the most expensive form of income. So when people have regular jobs, you are taxed basically on your earnings and then you have to live on what's left. But when you are self-employed and you run your own company or you're just you know a sole proprietor, you are taxed on what is left after you've paid for everything else. So um, I show with dollars and cents in, the, in two scenarios uh, in the book with two different uh, characters that I invented, how that plays out. Um, one is uh, Responsible Bert and then his sister, Reckless Betty. And Responsible Bert has a six-figure income. And at the end of the year, after he pays for everything with his Responsible Bert job, he has maybe $6,000 left in the bank. But Reckless Betty you know, she runs her own business and she does what she wants and she gets her own business to pay for her cell phone and her car. And, you know, because it's a food business, she eats, you know, the leftovers and reckless Betty has more than twice. She only looks like she has about $13,000 in income, but she actually has twice as much money left in the bank at the end of the year. So, um, and I, I, I spell those out very carefully. So when you look at those four income streams, the first one is meaningful employment. The second one is business income or self-employment. The third is what Radical Homemakers is all about, which is non-monetary income. And, um, and I explain in that book, 
That's huge in my family. At the time of the writing of that book, our non-monetary income, when I added it all up, came to about $70,000 a year. And the yeah, it's pretty amazing when you start looking at all the different ways you can do this. And um, the power of that non-monetary income is none of it is taxable. Absolutely, yeah. And then the fourth thing, which every homemaker and homesteader does not want to think about, but must think about, is passive income. Because Mm -hmm. all of us are living by our hands. We are all by our hands, by our backs, by our muscles. And um, when you're in your 20s and your 30s, that's absolutely great to use your body. But a few decades later, stuff breaks down (laughs) and you have to figure out what a, what a passive income stream is going to be that allows you to take time off to take care of yourself. That allows you to be with your family more. And you start to recognize that your pay raises that you give yourself in this way of life are more time. It's not actually Mm -hmm. getting more money, but figuring out how to have more time. And these passive income streams, learning how to develop those and build those into your economic profile really help with that. So the book talks about those four income streams and then says at any given time, you need three of them. So again, the four incomes are employment, meaningful employment, Mm self-employment, non-monetary income, and passive income. Choose any three. So if someone is in a job right now, what they need to do to make that transition is first ask if that job is honoring that quality of life. Is it meaningful? If it's not, that's like a five alarm fire. You really need to start visiting that. But before you just quit, you got to line up some other forms and it's not just line up the next job. You need to choose those other forms, get that overall household economic profile diversified. One person doesn't have to have all four, but in that household system, you need three of those four going. And then once you have that going, then you're able to live on a lot less. Probably if you use non-monetary as one of them, you're able to ride out the vicissitudes of quitting a job and, you know, maybe not taking something on right away. But I've noticed on this path, part of the reason I came to that is I learned, I learned by talking to a lot of people who, you know, tried to dive off and take the leap and, and didn't have that carefully woven economic safety net that would enable them to be successful. So this is what I've learned from experience. And I think it works. Yeah. I'm all about the safety net. I mean, I love taking risks, but also I like to sleep at night. So I can appreciate having your ducks in a row before you, yeah, before you've given your two week notice. I think that's why really wise. Um, I'm just curious. I I have an idea of some of them, but what are some of your family's non-income income streams? Well, obviously I cook. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's really critical. And our non-monetary income got pretty high, uh, because, um, I was, uh, I gave birth to a child with cerebral visual impairment. Mm. And so that was, um, And that's what really took us over the edge at the time when I did Redefining Rich, because uh, we were told she wasn't going to read, she wasn't going to ride a bike, um, that she was going to be severely academically disabled. And um, the places that could help her were special schools to the tune of $45,000 a year. And if I wanted to continue to parent her, then I was going to have to leave the farm, move to Mm -hmm. a city and try to get her this help. So... um, one of the things I did is I said, okay, I'm, I'm going to homeschool, but I'm going to get trained to be my daughter's therapist. And so it's not just 
green beans in the basement in cans. Yeah. I definitely have those, sure. but that was a big ticket, a big ticket item. And boy, if you met this kid now, I mean, the cafe was open on Saturday, the night before the cafe was open, she took an old bed sheet, she cut it up, she sewed it into a pleated skirt. She made scrunchies. Yep. She just made this scrunchie for me, by the way. Awesome. Do you like that? I love it. Um, made matching scrunchies and a face yep. mask and like just comes in full of style. She's got dress forms in her room, a sewing machine. She's always ripping up sheets, anything she can find, scraps that she finds from Goodwill. Um, she castrates our pigs on the farm. She's got phenomenal yep. veterinary, you know, pre-vet skills. The kid's amazing. Um, and she, uh, but to become her therapist was really critical. So that was another form of non-monetary income. We raise all of our meat on the farm. So I am fed by that. So another, another form of non-monetary income, uh, we got very unconventional. We started realizing, wait, it's not just about, can you, can you trade and barter your meat for your vegetables? It, we thought more deeply, um, in, in having this child who had severe learning issues, um, we had just, you know, dial up internet here. Yeah. And I actually um, said, you know what, I'm going to go down to the local um, telecommunications company, a small scale phone company. And I sat down across from the table from them and I said, hey, I want to open up a cafe in this down that doesn't have internet. And, um, and I got a kid with a severe learning disability and I need high speed uh, fiber. And they said, well, you know, it doesn't make sense to run it out to you. And I said, put a price tag on it. And we worked a deal where I leveraged my communication and writing skills and put some money up front. I actually only ended up putting $5,000 up front. Um, And we ran fiber optic internet through our community and all the way up to our house. And in exchange, um, I got free phone, internet, and cable for two generations in this household. So as long as my husband or I or my children have their names on the deeds of any of our properties, they have these services for free. So, you know, non-monetary income, like I said, it can look like my daughter cutting up sheets to make really cool fashions, but it can also be, hey, let's sit down and like work around the money. And one of the things I've really learned in this path is the resources are always available to me. They're always, I have million dollar resources available to me. I don't have to have a million dollar income to get them. It's a matter of finding the networks, tapping into them and asking the world and the universe for what I need. And it it works. The abundance comes. Yes, absolutely. I knew, and that's why I asked you that question because I knew you'd have some unconventional beyond the green beans and the meat. And I, you did not disappoint. So that is, that is so inspiring. Just thinking outside the box. I think so often we get stuck in like, this is the way it is. You got to follow this rule and really you don't, you don't have to most of the time. So yeah. My last question for you is one, actually people ask me all the time and I always never really know what to say. Cause I don't really know. I, I don't really know how I keep it all balanced, but people always ask me, how do I balance the homestead, the homemaking plus owning businesses and cafes and all the different things. So I mean, I know how I sort of kind of do it. I'd love to hear your answer to that question, All just right. for my own curiosity. You, yep. Two, two different answers. Um, one is I run a cafe. So if you run a cafe and you have to learn to think like a chef yeah. and a chef learns to think forward and backwards in time, you have to think about if you're going to serve this dish, how long does it take to prepare? And if I want, you know, if I'm going to serve eggs and home fries, I know that the home fries take twice as long to cook as the eggs. And then the sausage is in between. And you like have this forward and backward thinking in time. 
Um, I talk about this in Redefining Rich about developing that skill and learning to do something called mise en place, where you know you get all your tools lined up to do your job as efficiently as possible. You watch your movements and you you go in. You you know toss the phone to the side. You don't get on. That, you know don't yep. try to stop and Instagram it or whatever. Yep. Um, and you focus on your tasks at hand. And when you do your mise en place, you also mise the week. I say where you used to say what's happening on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And when you look at what's happening with all the things you're trying trying to juggle, you got to be honest because chefs have to be honest with time. You have to call it out and say, you know what? There's no way certain things are going to get done in the number of hours. So you start to learn to take things off, to delegate to other people, um, or to say some things just cannot be done. So you start to really get a realistic sense of what works. And that system for me is very key. And I do talk about that in depth, about how to implement that in Redefining Rich, but also in that free workbook that I mentioned. But the other one that is so important, Jill, is the word no. Yeah. I use the word no for just about everything. I would say I give out 99 no's for one yes. Um, I have learned I have that quality of life that I'm after. And if it doesn't feed it, if it doesn't honor it, I'm just not going to do it. And I'm 48 years old now. I just don't do guilt anymore. Yeah. I always loved that line from friends that Phoebe Buffet says, was, oh, I'd love to, but I don't want to. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, you just have to learn to, um, particularly if you don't have a job and you're in control of your time, then there will always be claims made upon it by the outside yes. world. And if you're trying to change and make the outside world better, some of those claims are legitimate, but a lot of them are not. A lot of them, if you say no, You know, we say yes out of guilt because, oh, I got to change the world. So I got to say yes, I got to serve on this board and I got to be on this committee and I got to do this other thing. But the truth is, when you say no, chances are that's making room for someone else who's a better fit to step in. Mm. So you can't be shy about those no's. Taking yourself out of the picture um, enables other people to step forward. And I don't refuse to help everybody, but one of the tricks that I have learned is I do not do meetings. I don't do boards, yes. committees. I do not yeah. do group meetings, yeah. period. Yeah. What I do is, I, but I always say yes to one-on-one. And I have learned that if I go into a group setting, then I have a personality that does one of two things. Either I destroy everything because I can think of a better way, or yeah. I sense the tensions that are going on, or I'll say what no one says, and then that disrupts the whole harmony of everything. Yeah. So I can be like absolute chaos. I have a friend who calls me Sekhmet or Kali. Like you just put me in a group yeah. situation and things will blow up. Yeah. So I've learned this, like you don't want me on your committee. Just trust me. You really don't. Um, The other thing that will happen is I'll get so committed to making something successful that I'll take a disproportionate amount of work on and I'll step in and and then it's my ego, like who wants to succeed, who wants to be right. That's toxic. It's not good. So since I can't be a good grown up person in those settings, I don't do them, but I always meet with people one-on-one and I have a formula um, for my knowing called, uh, and I got it from William Urey, who also wrote Getting to Yes. Uh, It's called the yes, no, yes formula. I start with what I'm saying yes to. I'm saying yes to time. I'm saying yes to keeping my business going. Um, And, or I'm saying yes to what matters about what the uh, person, the querent is asking. Sure. And then I say no very clearly. 
And then I answer it with a sec the second yes, which is what I can do. So no, I cannot join your committee, but I am happy to sit down with you at the end of a cafe day for 15 minutes and go over some of your ideas. Or no, I'm not going to join this particular activity, but if you would like, I will put your information in my newsletter that goes out to a few thousand people so that they know about it. So you find something that you can say yes to. Sometimes you really don't want anything to do with someone, but <laughs> sure, sure, no, <laughs> you do reason. generally yeah, want to yeah. encourage things, but yeah, that's my advice. Say no a lot and get mm. your mise en place in place. Yeah. Oh, so good. So good. And I, yeah, the no is something I'm getting better, but I need to get even more better at it because it's the guilt is it's real. And you know, you want to be the nice person and you want to be the supportive and the, the cheerleader, but you cannot cheerlead all the things or you will no. crash and burn. So, yeah. yeah. And then you're not there for your family and you're not there to, for yourself. Yeah. And if you're withering, you're useless to anybody. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. And the creative energy just goes kaput. Nothing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so good. So much wisdom. Anything that you wanted to share that maybe we didn't cover? Um, you know, I, I screw up a lot. Um, I, you know, I have a lot of wisdom, but it, it, I came by it honestly with a lot of mistakes. Yeah. Um, I write about those stories every week during the growing season. So people can check those out on the hearth of Satwish Hollow podcast if they want, okay. but um, they can go over to the radical homemaker.net. They can get that workbook if they're interested. And um, yeah, I just, I love what you're doing and I'm glad that there's people out there who are still keen on this and still trying to make yeah. it work. It's yeah, a good absolutely. life. I've had a really fun run with this. You know, I've been doing it now uh, since I got out of college. Uh, I finished at Cornell University when I was 26 years old and have, I say, I've been gainfully unemployed ever since. And now I'm yeah. 48 years old and we're building wealth in all the best ways. We're building community and we're having a lot of fun. Yeah. Like, yeah, it is a good life. I like how you put that. And thank you for being one of the, the pioneers leading the charge. Then Happy and to now. do it. Yeah. Excellent. Well, everyone go check out Shannon's um, website. Go check out her books, Radical Homemakers and Redefining Rich. I have Redefining Rich on my list. I will be reading it very soon. Um, you might see it in one of our book clubs coming up. And um, thank you so much, Shannon. This was so good. And thank you for saying yes. I feel very honored <laughs> to be a yes <laughs> for you. So um, it was fantastic. Thank you, Jill. I appreciate it.